If you've got a Bible, uh, please turn uh, to Luke and chapter 19. We're continuing in our studies in Luke. And uh, if you've got a church, one of the Red Bibles, that's on page 1053. And if you've got more than one finger, put one of the other ones, uh, if you can, in Matthew 25. And that's on page 994. So our main passage, Luke chapter 19, 11 to 27, and Matthew 25, uh, beginning at verse 14. So page 1053 and uh, 994. I'll give away a bit of admin from how this church works. Uh, The speakers are given the dates before uh, we know what the passage is. Uh, And so I said yes to this date before I knew what the passage was. And then I read the passage and I was a bit regretful. And I thought, oh, I've missed Zacchaeus by a week. Zacchaeus would have been, oh, that would have been so easy. Oh, I know the story. I've studied it. I could dust off some old notes. I could come along. And, and, but I haven't got Zacchaeus. That was last week. And, and today I've got a parable uh, that Jesus told that is often avoided because it's quite awkward. It's even quite brutal. Now, before I read it, uh, let us, let me, I think some history will help. I want to take you back to Christmas. Okay? You remember, Christmas, Jesus was born. Herod, trying to kill Jesus, gave out that awful edict, kill all the boys under two. As a result of that, Mary and Joseph took Jesus down south into Egypt, and there they stayed until Herod died. And now there's a map up here uh, which says the situation after Herod in 4 BC. Now, this doesn't tend to make any sense, but we haven't got time to go into this this morning. Will you just trust me that Jesus was not born in the year zero? He was born, we believe, in the year 5 BC. I know it makes no sense that Christ was born in the year 5 before Christ, but he was. And Herod, who gave that awful edict to murder the little boys uh, in that region, he didn't live much beyond the time that Jesus was born. Historians think it was probably only 18 months at the very most. And so that's why this says, after Herod, in the year 4 BC, what happened was Herod made a number of wills, but one of his wills that was taken anyway was that his kingdom would be divided up between largely three of his sons. You probably can't read this, but there's a brown bit at the bottom, and that includes Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Uh, that's under now Herod Archelaus. There's this sort of mauve bit in the middle. Uh, that's uh, now governed by Herod Antipas, and that includes Uh, Nazareth, uh, the region of Galilee, and then you've got Herod Philip uh, right up the top. And in our Christmas story, if you go back and you remember it, they went to Egypt, and then they they were told that Herod, the danger, had gone. He had died. And so it was time for them to come back. And then we get this verse in Matthew chapter 2. But when... Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why? Because Archelaus was even more brutal, if he could be, than his father. He was a dreadful king. Now remember that the whole of this country is still under Roman occupation. So although Herod had bequeathed that his kingdom should be split into three, These kings, yeah, as far as the people were concerned, they were their kings, but they had to go to Rome 
to get authority from Caesar to take up the position of kingship. And just to give you a clue, an insight into what Archelaus was like, before he made that trip to Rome, which he made, but before he did, there was an uprising in Jerusalem. And the historians tell us that he put down this uprising with such brutality that on the temple mount, in the temple courts, I don't know if, what sort of picture that conjures up in your mind, it's actually a, a huge place. If you go there today, it's still there, a plinth, as it were, approaching 36 acres of land. So it's a big place. On that temple plinth, 3,000 Jews were murdered at the orders of Archelaus. So it's not surprising that when Archelaus made that journey to Rome to see Caesar Augustus to get his permission to become king, a delegation of Jews also went. Fifty of them went from Jerusalem. They went to Rome to plead with Caesar, please don't make this guy our king. And they were joined by 8,000 Jews who lived in Rome uh, uh, in, 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 in the surrounding areas. But Caesar at that time didn't listen. Ten years later he would listen and Archelaus would be deposed and exiled to France. I don't know what's wrong with France, but he, they ended up with him. <laughs> wow, what a brutality. What, brut, what brutal action. And yet I think that will help us, just getting that bit of history in our heads, That will help us understand this parable that we're about to read together. Let's read it in Luke and chapter 19. Beginning at verse 11. While they were listening, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said... A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten, now there's a word here called minors, it's a coin. I'm going to call it a coin from now on. Ten coins, one coin each. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your coin has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been faithful, uh, trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your coin has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your coin. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take this coin away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's quite a hard passage, isn't it? And we struggle with it a bit. But I hope just by giving that bit of history, we can see that when Jesus was telling this story, it would have been inevitable for the people to think back to Archelaus, the king, who went to a far-off country to be made king. And his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. Everything the Bible says fits with that guy, Archelaus. And where are they? Where did Zacchaeus live? He lived in Jericho. That's where they are. On this journey, we've been travelling with Jesus, haven't we, and the crowds, as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the next stop. It's just, it's just 18 miles away. They'll be there the next day. But do you know that guy, Archelaus? Guess where he built his palace? Jericho. Probably it would have been in sight of the people when Jesus told this story. So I think they would have understood a little bit, they would have known about their own history. And it would have made sense to them. But it doesn't make sense to us, because we we would say to ourselves, yeah, but surely, is this a picture of King Jesus? Because it's not a picture that I recognize. Surely it's not describing him, is it? And we think like that because so many of the parables, that's how we are meant to take them. When we study the parables, we have to remember one thing. There are two types of parables. There are parables of comparison and parables of contrast. Let me give you an example. Uh, We've already seen a few weeks back the parable of the lost sons, didn't we? And that's a parable of comparison. We look at the father. I'm sorry if you don't know the story, if you're just visiting, but we haven't got time to go over it again. But, But you can look at the father in that parable and you can learn about the heart of God. You can learn about the mercy of God. You can learn about the character of God because that is a parable of comparison. And then a couple of weeks after that, we had the unjust judge. Just in the last chapter, a guy described as a person who didn't fear man and he didn't even fear God. That's not a parable of comparison. That's a parable of contrast. That was telling us that even the most evil people in this world can do good. How much more would a loving God, a just judge, do good? A parable of contrast. And so here we have uh, one of these parables of contrast. So when we read about this king, this isn't a picture of King Jesus. His subjects don't hate him. At this stage, they love him. The very next morning, they're about to be waving palms in the air, shouting Hosanna, taking off their coats and laying it in front of his, of his donkey. They're going to welcome him into Jerusalem. They love him. They don't hate him. They wouldn't describe Jesus as a hard man who, who is dishonest, who takes what, he, what isn't his, who reaps what he doesn't sow. That's not a picture of Jesus. It's, it's very true that it's a picture of Herod Archelaus, but that's not a picture of Jesus. And most specifically, when we come to our last verse, when the king says, bring those people who didn't want me to be their king and kill them in front of my eyes... Do we really think that God glories in the deaths of his opponents like that? 
Nothing could be further from the truth. We've just taken bread and wine to convince us, to remind us. Nothing can be further from the truth. God is doing, has done, will continue to do everything possible to bring us life. Now that isn't to say that where we put our trust in this life, it is a matter of life and death. You remember just before Jesus went to the cross, he was interviewed by Pilate. Pilate, a Roman official, he could find no fault in Jesus. He didn't want to condemn him. And he, we're told in, in Matthew 27 that he symbolically took some water and he washed his hands and he, he's, he's like saying, I'm washing my hands of him. It's not my responsibility anymore. You do whatever you want to do. And Matthew 27 records a frightening statement. It says, all the people, all the people said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so the next day, when Jesus is brought out, battered and bruised and bleeding and burdened with the cross, he comes across some ladies who are weeping for him. And and Luke 23 records that Jesus said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for yourselves, not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. And those who study the scriptures believe that, well, I Google, what is a generation? When they say, talk about our children, what's a generation? Google tells me it's about 38 years for a man. So roughly 38, 39, 40 years, something like that is a generation. Jesus died uh, roughly AD 30. Let's add a generation onto that. So that would incorporate the children of those who wanted him dead, wouldn't it? And so that brings us to about AD 68, AD 69. What do we find? AD 66, there was a huge uprising by the Jews against the Roman occupation. And uh, the, the, the Romans had had enough. And they were of a mind to absolutely crush the Jews. And that's what they did. It took them about four years completely. But in AD 68, 69, there was a guy called Titus, a commander of the Roman soldiers, and he had surrounded Jerusalem. And people, the Jews, who lived there and in those surrounding places, they tried to escape. But they were caught. There was no hope for them. And they were crucified. And history tells us, and I'm sorry about the brutality of this, but it's true, history tells us that up to 500 people were crucified every day around the city of Jerusalem to show those people who were still in the city what was their fate. And it was their fate. And I have to say, who were these people on the crosses? They were the people who said, let his blood be upon us. And they were the children of those people who said, let his blood be upon us and upon his children. I don't want to take away the truth of the Bible. It is talking about life and death, but do not confuse that with what this parable might be interpreted as saying, that somehow God glories in the death of, his, of the people who reject him. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Now, I said keep, a, keep a, a finger in Matthew 25, didn't I? Because there's another parable in Matthew 25, and it's very, very similar. Um, but it's also very, very different. And, and there are some people, they can't kind of get their heads around it, and they say, we think it's the same story. And there's others, people who say, no, 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 it, there's too many differences. Uh, Matthew or Luke must have forgotten bits of it and got it wrong. And I have to put up my hand to you today and say, look, having studied this, I believe I'm in the latter camp. I think this is a different story, even though it has similarities. And uh, I just want to focus on our last few minutes together about those differences, which is what convinces me that this is telling us about something different. Now, the purpose of Jesus telling this story is clear. I don't have to guess it. It's in verse 11. The people there in Jericho, with him going to Jerusalem, it says they believed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. That's why they welcomed him into the city. They had looked for this long-promised Messiah, the one that God was going to send to intervene. And and they, they believed that Jesus was that one, but they also believed that when he came into Jerusalem, everything was going to change. In some miraculous way, the kingdom of God was going to be established. Those Roman occupiers were going, to, were going to be vanquished. They'd be thrown out of the country. Everyone would worship the true and the living God. That's what they believed. But Jesus knew that that was not how it was going to happen. That was not God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation was so different. God's plan of salvation started with the cross. God himself crucified. And and then he tells his story because there's going to be a long time for the people to wait, the believers to wait until the king comes and his kingdom is established without question and everybody will know it. See, the people had to learn that. They thought it was today, tomorrow, next week. Jesus was letting them know that it was nothing like that that it was as if a king had gone to a far-off land, taking a long time. Now, we can see that easily, because we're in that time. We know, we can look back 2,000 years, and we are still waiting for the king to come and for his kingdom to be fully established. We understand it, but they needed to understand it. But, and every believer knows this, we're not left alone And in the intervening period, we're not left without responsibility. And so we're called here servants. And so the king came to his servants and gave his servants, those who serve him, gave them something. He entrusted something to them, a coin it was. But it it, it stands for something else. So he's entrusted them with something, and one day he's coming back, and those who've been entrusted with this something have got to give account. That's what the story says. So what is this something? Well, one clue is that it's the same for everybody. He had ten coins, ten people. It's just a a picture, and he gives them all a coin. That's a difference. If you look back in Matthew 25 at that parable, uh, he's talking about different things. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. But in this parable, they all get the same. They all get one. So what could it be? Could it be money? 
Well, I, I've heard about money being associated with the parable in Matthew 25, but it doesn't fit this parable. It is patently obvious that we haven't all got the same amount of money, isn't it? Some people have got loads of money. Some people have got very little. By the way, as an aside, can I say a thank you? Often, the folk with little often teach others who've got a lot how to be good stewards. I'll take my hat off to you. Thank you for that. It seems very small. This amount, it's just worth three months' wages. It's a tiny amount. It seems small. So we've all got the same, and it seems small. Compared to Matthew 25, it talks about someone having five talents. That, believe me, trust me, that's 300 times more than one coin is worth in our parable. They've got loads. So it's not money. Or, or is it talent? No, again, I think Matthew 25 speaks about our talents. We've all got different talents. It would be foolish, of, churlish of me to stand here this morning and say, well, we've all got the same amount of talent. We haven't. I wish I had, <laughs> but we haven't. And there are some people who are enormously talented. Talented in bucket loads. I, I think of that uh, actor, Hugh Laurie, you know, who played Dr. House, became the, the best paid actor in, in, in America for a while. Wouldn't that be enough for someone? Did he have to be a brilliant musician as well? Not only on the keyboard, but on the guitar? Was that necessary? And when he was at university, did he have to be a brilliant athlete? Did he have to be chosen to, to, to row for Cambridge? Some people have got a lot of talent. Some people haven't. <laughs> that isn't to say that whatever it is that we can do, we should do with all our heart. That's what the Bible says, as serving the Lord. We should do it 100% effort, but let's not pretend we've all got the same talent. We haven't. So this parable is taking us somewhere else. They've all got the same. And this same thing appears quite small to the parable in Matthew 25. What is it that we have that's all the same and that appears quite small, insignificant, I think we have it in our laps. I think I have it in my hands. We all have the Word of God. Look at your Bible. You'll have 66 books in it. There aren't Christians who, because I've been a Christian for more than 10 years, I'm, I'm entitled to Bible version 2 with 160 books in it. It doesn't work like that. We've all got God's Word. The same Word. And we've been learning in this church over recent weeks and months how that this word in its entirety, we bring it down to a single word, the gospel. We have the gospel. And we all have it. And we have a responsibility with this gospel. Why do I think that this might be talking about the gospel? Two reasons I see in our parable. The first is the huge increase you know, when the king finally comes and says, what have you done with what I entrusted to you? The one with the coin, the one coin, we all have one, he comes and he says, I've got 11. Tenfold increase. If you look back in Matthew 25, the one who had the five talents, he came and said, I've made five more. That's just a 100% increase. The increase here seems huge. And there's something else as well. If you go back to Matthew 25, when those people give account, they say, 
The one who's had five, he says, I have made five more. The one who had two said, I have made two more. Look what this parable says. When they're giving account, they said, your coin, that thing that you entrusted to us, your coin has made ten more. Your coin has done it. It's the gospel that has done it. It's There's power in the gospel. We were kind of thinking when the kids were here about the impact of Patrick all those years ago. When Patrick gets to heaven, he will finally understand how many people trusted in Jesus because of him. I can tell you this. Patrick will not be saying, look what I've done. He'll be saying to God, look what you've done. Look what what you entrusted to me. Look what it's achieved. And he'll take off whatever crown he's wearing and he'll lay it at the feet of the Saviour. That's where we started in our service, wasn't it? Crown him with many crowns. He's the one who deserves the honour and the glory. And I think this parable touches also on the unimagined riches that are in Christ. And we've had that mentioned to us in the last couple of weeks. Sometimes, I go back to those people with a lot of money, those people with a bit of money, it's natural for us to sort of think, oh, if only I had a bit more, life, life would be easier. And don't get me wrong, life would be easier. But don't confuse that to the riches that we have in Christ. Look what the king says when the guy says, you're what you've given us, it's made ten more. He says, go and take charge of ten cities. That's what the king gives those who are faithful. And we say, what? How? I've not been that faithful. Yes, this is the riches that we have in Christ. What is stored up for believers in the Lord Jesus beyond this life is unimaginable. That's what the Bible says. We can't imagine it. It's going to be so wonderful, so magnificent, so out of all proportion to anything we've done or anything we've made. Time's gone. So let me end with this question. What are we to do? If we're believers, if we're followers in the Lord Jesus, and if we believe that until he comes as king in all his glory, he's entrusted us with the good news, with the gospel, what do we do with it? Churches, including our own, from time to time, buy books, follow courses, talk about strategies, talk about methodologies of how to present the gospel more effectively to people we know. And I'm sure all of those have their place. And some fit some people and some fit other people. Some people are left kind of scratching their heads saying, this will never work for me. And others say, yeah, well, I'll give it a go. All of those things have their place. But there is an answer in this parable, which I think in a way superimposes itself on any strategy and any methodology that man would come up with. Think of the man that the bad king condemned. He came and he said, basically, I've done nothing. I've done nothing with what you gave me. 
What did the king say? Well, no, first, what did this man say? He said, I've done nothing because I knew you. I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be someone who takes what isn't theirs. I knew you to be someone who reaps what he doesn't sow. And even though I knew you, I did nothing. And he says, I'm condemning you by your own words. Because if you really knew me, he's saying, if you really knew that I was all those things, and by the way, I was, and I am, and that's Arcadus for you, he was all those things, you would have jolly well made sure that you did something with what he entrusted to you. And I think, as I've been looking at this through the week and praying about it and studying it, I think that's the answer. We can say to Jesus, when we give account, I knew what sort of king you were. I knew your heart. I knew your character. I knew your mind. I've taken time to learn about you from your word. To, to speak with you and to receive from you in prayer all sorts of things that made me know you better. That's the secret. It seems to me this parable is saying that the better you know the Lord Jesus, you will almost automatically know what to do with what he's entrusted with us, to us. And if we don't take time to know him, then we won't know. So if you're asking that question, I hope that makes sense. If you're asking yourself that question, what do I do with this precious word that he has given us? What do I do with this gospel that he's entrusted to me? The answer is spend time getting to know him better. And I believe this parable is teaching us that as we get to know Jesus better, we will know what he wants us to do Remember the words of Patrick? He who gave his life for you, he said, he it is who speaks within you. Patrick knew what it was to have Jesus in his life, guiding him, speaking with him, telling him what to do and how to share the gospel with those around him. And I believe what was right for Patrick is right for us this morning. Beyond anything else, get to know Jesus better. And these things, difficult things, will begin to fall into place in our own lives, I believe. Amen.